This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Today, our author is 100-plus million book-selling and Edgar Award-winning crime writer Patricia Cornwell. We spoke with her as she was touring the United States talking about her 22nd crime novel in her K. Scarpetta series, Flesh and Blood, by HarperCollins Books. This one-on-one was done in November of 2014. Patricia Cornwell started out working with words professionally as a reporter in North Carolina in the late 1970s. She began doing feature work, but eventually moved to the crime beat where she eventually won an award for a series on prostitution. By the time she started writing novels in 1984, her news background led her to want to make her imagined subjects as real as possible. So she began to take an almost participatory journalistic approach to her novels. Well, I created the characters, and in turn, they've created me, because I decided Lucy should be a helicopter pilot back in, like, 85, um, and I began to take lessons, and I've been a helicopter pilot since 1999 now. I decided in Cause of Death that Scarpetta needs to scuba dive and work an underwater crime scene, so I had to become a scuba diver. Uh, Like in Flesh and Blood, what sort of firearms do I need to get access to to go to big gun ranges and test fire? So... Yes, I try to go out and do a lot of these things that the characters do so that I write about it with authority. And that authority has helped her revolutionize the crime genre, not just in literature, but on television as well, where she's often credited for greatly influencing the rise of forensic science being popular in crime dramas on the air. We'll hear about the hugely popular Kate Scarpetta series of books and Life Beyond the Printed Word for our guest, Edgar Award-winning best-selling writer Patricia Cornwell, on this episode of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Cordell Whitlock. The following statement is based solely on my observation. Kay Scarpetta is highly intelligent, driven, compassionate, and conflicted. She doesn't back down from formidable challenges and can cook an Italian meal to die for. (laughs) Did I just describe Patricia Cornwell? Well, Scarpetta's much smarter than I am. I mean, she's a real forensic pathologist and a lawyer, and I'm just an English major who's, you know, been educating myself in all this for literally 30 years now. The first time I stepped foot in a medical examiner's office was in 1984, and soon after I conceived of this character named Scarpetta, but she didn't really see the light of day until almost six years later. What was it about that field that attracted you? What, why did you find that so interesting? Because when, you know, I, right after college, I became a journalist, and I was assigned the police beat. And my very first homicide scene, I remember when I got there, and they took the body away, and I'm thinking, what are they doing with it? Where does it go? What do they do? You know, back, this was probably 1979, and back in those days, very there was very little known about forensic science and forensic medicine. I mean, we saw the show Quincy, for those who remember that, but there was really nothing out there that told us what is done with the most important piece of evidence 
in a murder or a, in an unnatural death. That most important, important piece of evidence is the human body itself. So what, I could not get those questions answered. The medical examiners were not accessible. Uh, they were far away, and I became more and more curious as I continued to do my job. What are they doing when they take this body away? So when I decided in 1983 to start, I thought, you know, I think I'd like to write books about crime. I want to, that's what I want to go into. And I first started dabbling in it. I was really confused because I didn't know what to do once the homicide detective is leaving the scene. Where does the body go? So I started doing the research. And the minute I visited my first office in 1984, and I started hearing about DNA coming down the pike. I heard about using lasers in the morgue, in the autopsy room, to look for trace evidence that might fluoresce with these special light sources. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to know about all this. So really, you got involved in that field as research to write books. That's right. And a lot of people don't think that. They think that I was already working there and decided to capitalize on that information because I was in that environment. I was a journalist who basically embedded myself in a medical examiner system for what ended up being six years so I could learn enough to write about it. And that's where Scarpetta came from. You have sold over 100 million copies of your books, enough to give every man, woman, and child in New York City a copy plus. <laughs> Did you ever envision that when you started putting pen to paper? No, no, and, and I tell this as a, a great word of encouragement for other artists, for anybody who wants to do anything. If, if rejection was the measure of your worth, I wouldn't be sitting here because I had three full-length novels that featured Scarpetta rejected, and then I wrote Postmortem, was rejected by every major publishing house in New York except Scribner's, which finally took it on with a wing and a prayer, so to speak, um, and, and I got the, the whopping sum of $6,000 for it, 6000 first printing, no advertising, no marketing, my first book signing, not a single person showed up, and that was the way things started with this series, and I never, ever would have believed that this would happen. What were some of the comments you received from the publishing houses that rejected what you wrote? That postmortem was dark. It was monochromatic. I still don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> yeah, that people really did not want to read about morgues and laboratories, and certainly not a woman who worked in such places was the gist of it. They didn't know what to do with this. It was very graphic. It was a world that they had never had not really been seen, not in detail, and so. I think it was too much of a risk. And that's not uncommon when you try to do something new and different. Um, and now, of course, it all seems silly because we're inundated with all of this type of information. You write the three novels. It wasn't an instant success. No, it was not an instant success. I mean, I wrote the first one in 84, and it, nobody wa it went around and around for a whole year. Nobody wanted it. Meanwhile, I started the second one, and that one made the rounds for a year. Nobody wanted it. Then the third one, and... Then I said, I'm going to try one more time. But I did get some good advice from an editor. I'm I not supposed to do this. I called the person and said, this is three books you've rejected. What am I doing wrong? And I'm so sorry to bother you. And she says, no, no, that's fine. She said, you know, she said, you work in a medical examiner's office now, right? And I said, yes. She said, so the things you're writing about, this, is that what you see? And I said, no, because I'd come up with these rather fanciful plots or like murder mystery type plots. And she said, you know, your best character is this woman medical examiner who was a minor character. And she says, oh, why don't you use her and write about what you really see at the Emmy's office? And I said, okay. And that was postmortem. 
I made Scarpetta the main character, and, I, and there were serial killings that had begun in that city that I used as the inspiration for something similar to be happening to Scarpetta. And that, of course, is what launched all this, is I went from the conventions of a genre and basically shattered it and said, I'm going to write about what I see, but I'm going to fictionalize it and make it somebody who works in this world, and this is the last doctor these patients will ever see. What was the point where you knew, wow, I'm on to something here? This, this, this is great. And what was that feeling like? I think it's with the second one with Body of Evidence, because the paper, I mean, the paperback of that actually hit the bestseller list, and I got a lot more money than I'd gotten. I mean, like 20 times more money than I got for postmortem. And I started thinking, wow, I think I might be able to make a living at this. But to go back to your earlier question, did I ever think that someday those books would be in 121 countries and sell 100 million copies or whatever? Of course not. I would have, I'm glad I didn't know that. I probably would have scared the hell out of me. (laughs) So this is based on your personal experience doing research, working in a medical examiner's office. Any of the characters based on people that you know in real life? No, they're not. They're not based on anybody even remotely similar to anyone I've ever met. In fact, I can't really tell you where they come from. I have never met a Lucy. Um, I've never met, well, I have met a few Marinos out there, if you run around with the police enough. But Scarpetta, no. Um, Benton Wesley, not really, Uh uh-uh. But I certainly have... I've accumulated so much information, now 30 years of it, that you filter it through these people and they become really rather remarkable individuals and they stand on their own two feet and are like friends or like people you know. And that's the fun of it. How do you keep on top of the evolving technology in the medical examination field and forensic science? Well, I read a lot. I keep up with the current things that are going on in the field. I, I, you know, professional journals, this sort of thing. I also know people. That's the big thing. I, I, every year, I always do research. I continue to go out and, and do things with these people, just like I did in the beginning of time. I have never rested on my laurels. I never start a book and say, I don't have to do anything now. I always plan, what am I going to do? Where in the field am I going to have to go? Uh, like in, in flesh and blood, what sort of firearms do I need to get access to to go to big and go to big gun ranges and test uh, test fire in Texas, for example? I better get back into scuba diving, which is what I also did in this book because I hadn't been in about twenty years. So I go out and do things, and when I hang out with real people, I get you know information from them. They'll send me an email and say, "I thought you might want to see this. This is just something brand new that most people don't know about, like the CT scanners." I heard about those long before I even wrote about them, that this was beginning to be something new, where you use three-dimensional CT scans on the body in some innovative places before you ever touch it with the blades. You almost get GPS positioning um, on where you're going to find something when you open the person up. So it's interesting, in addition to research, some of the things that we read about, like the scuba diving, you actually do yourself. Well, I created the characters, and in turn, they've created me because I decided Lucy should be a helicopter pilot back in, like, 84, 85, um, and I began to take lessons, and I've been a helicopter pilot since 1999 now. I decided in Cause of Death in 95 or so that Scarpetta needs to scuba dive and work an underwater crime scene, so I had to become a scuba diver. Lucy drives Ferraris. That is less of a hardship for me than some other things I do um, to drive fun cars like that, so... Um, yes, I try to go out and do a lot of these things that the characters do, including some of the cooking that Scarpetta does, so that I write about it with authority. I want to read a passage that, that struck me. You're, you're so descriptive 
Had a gun been fired on the property, someone would have heard it. I strongly suspect that Neri was shot long range by someone experienced and skilled who had a point to make. I retrieve a magnifying hand lens to get a better look at the small tangential hole in the back of the neck at the hairline. I take photographs. I turn the head slightly to the right and blood spills out of the wound, an entrance wound. I move the head some more and shine a flashlight. Fragments of copper light up like gold in a mush of coagulating blood, hair, and brain tissue. Why is it as a society that we eat this stuff up? The <laughs> ballistics, the bullet trajectory, the murder reconstructions. Why is it we can't get enough of this? Well, I think a big part of it is, this, part of, this is going to sound odd to say, it really has to do with our innate survival instinct as people. That if we can figure out what caused somebody to die, then maybe we can prevent the same thing from happening to us. So we take it apart piece by piece. We dissect it. We want to know why this happened, because maybe if we do live our lives differently, we won't have the same thing occur to us. So it really is about, I think it's more about trying to stay alive than it's about being fixated on the dead. You mentioned that the characters aren't based on real life people, but I am curious, Kay Scarpetta, do you know anyone like her in your life? Have you come across anyone like her? No, I really haven't. Um, That she's, I, I cannot think of anybody that I would say reminds me of Scarpetta. She is really unique, and that's why I continue to be very interested in her. She's, she's really, I've created an ideal human being. This is a woman who really could be no gender. There is no judgment with her. There is no, she's an incredibly enlightened, highly evolved human being. She's exactly who you'd want to bring in if you have something awful happen, because she will fix it. Um, she is unstoppable. She's incredibly tenacious. She is brilliant, and... I think you'd enjoy having a drink with her, and you'd sure like to have some for pizza. But so, but she's kind of like my, if you imagine somebody that you wish was your next-door neighbor or maybe was your mother's best friend when you were a little kid or your father's best friend, she's sort of, she's, she's the real deal. You just said Kay was the ideal human being. At least from my point of view, one of the things that stood out in the book, Kay and Benton had the ideal marriage. Well, what's interesting about Benton and Kay is that very few people would understand either one of them. The landscape inside of their heads is a very scary place. I mean, I think of these photographs all over the internet right now, the comet, you know, with the the little landing craft that's perched on the side of it like a metal insect, and what a stark, bizarre world. And that sort of reminds me of what the inside of the minds of these two people must be like, that it's something we've never seen before, because Benton, you know, is an FBI criminal intelligence analyst, what some people still think of as a profiler. And so you can imagine the things that he's sees. Um, They're horrific beyond description. And of course, same with her. So for these two people with all their darkness inside of them to come together and bring warmth and color and life, and yet understand that stark landscape that seems like outer space to us, that gives them a camaraderie that is unparalleled. And you really see that because amongst all this death and destruction, some of the rays of hope or the brightest rays of hope is when she's talking about her husband. They really love each other. And they've been together a very long time. Really, they first met in postmortem, and um, it wasn't until the, the body farm. And I didn't plan this, but they, you know, she he cut himself at a crime scene, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, and she's giving him stitches because she is the good doctor. And I thought, uh oh, I see what's happening here. These two are going to be bad with each other. And that was 20 years ago, and they still are. Coming up in a moment, we'll get into how Patricia Cornwell's life extends well beyond writing about crime, all the way to trying to help those that investigate it do their jobs better. 
I am very involved in training. I have a number of programs I'm involved in that help train police, that help train death investigators, because training is the most important thing. A lot of the really horrible things that you see on the news, particularly cases that seem to have been bungled and caused tremendous problems in our society, um, a lot of things could be prevented if training were different. Prevent things if you can. Don't force good people to have to go out and work a crime scene and autopsy a body if we could prevent that death to begin with. That and a reading from her 22nd book in the Case Scarpetta series, Flesh and Blood, when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Is it true that your books were the inspiration behind the, the CSIs and the cold case files? How, how, I heard that. Is that true? Well, I think it is true because Scarpetta was the trailblazer for what I call, you know, the forensic thriller. She, she literally opened the gate to make forensic science and medicine accessible to the entertainment industry. Prior to that, I, I don't think enough was known about it to realize how wildly entertaining it might be to see people work crime scenes and the new technology that was coming in. And so, and this was like a snowball going down a hill because in addition to the publicity that these books began to bring to all that, you had the technology um, was, was growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, I think it was the late 80s, the 1980s, when DNA was first used in court. Um, and so everything started happening really quickly. But I, I don't so yes, she, she made all this accessible, I think, to people. She was the first. Do you watch the CSIs or Cold Case Files? Do you watch any of these shows? I don't watch a lot of the, the dramas. I mean, I like to watch nonfiction shows about crime. I do, I watch weirder stuff like Dexter. You know, I'm, I don't care as much about the forensic procedural because that's what I do. I'd rather see a show like Dexter, for example, and, uh, you know, House of Cards or Scandal or all these other things that that uh, I tend to really enjoy and binge watch, I'm sorry to admit. Your characters, obviously, millions of people have embraced them. Um, they're a part of their lives. What are some of the comments, maybe some of the odder comments you get from your reading public? Well, the, the most typical comments, which you're right, sound a little odd, but then I say the same things myself, is people talk about these characters as if they're real. And so they will, they'll ask you very pointed questions about the relationships between them or like whoever Lucy's partner is or whatever, and they discuss it as if it's people they know and they just don't understand why someone did this or why wouldn't they do that or maybe if they did this it'd be better because they're, they're human to them. They're alive and well. And it may sound odd, but it really sounds wonderful because I would like to think that these have become, these characters have become parts of, of other people's families. I want to talk about the actual writing process. Is it very formal? You have a system and you have an outline and you have um, a, a certain way you do it, or is it the kind of thing where you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you have an idea, 
and you hit the computer. I think it's the Big Bang. I think there's just this explosion in my head, and somehow something gets created out of it that makes sense. And don't ask me how that even occurs, because I literally start a book with a type of research I want to do, such as in flesh and blood. Uh, I wanted to do really high-tech firearms and ballistics research, because I've never really showed that to my readers. And I just go out in the field, and I do it, and I start gathering all this information, and then I construct a crime scene with the sole purpose in mind that I am going to confound Scarpetta. When she gets to the crime scene, and you just read a little bit of it, the other thing she's thinking is, this makes no sense. It seems to defy the law of physics because the flight path of the bullet or trajectory that would have to have happened for this injury to have occurred the way it has makes no sense. And so I give her something to ruin her day. And then I Let's see what she does with it. I don't have note cards. I don't have outlines. I was two-thirds of the way in this book. I didn't know who the killer was. I was still trying to figure out like she was. And I finally said, my partner, Stacy, had said, um, I have a really bad feeling this killer is somebody that I might already be familiar with. I mean, you would think that I'm talking about somebody real also. And I just started getting this feeling and figuring it out. And sure enough, and I won't say much more because I don't want to ruin it, but that is how my process. It is organic, and it's, it sounds weird, but it works for me. Do you get writer's block? I absolutely do get writer's block. How do you deal with it? I deal with it usually by going out and doing something else. Like, for example, if I'm really stuck, really, really stuck, it usually means I need to do some more research. So I go out in the field and do anything, could go to the medical examiner's office, whatever it is. Um, Sometimes it's just a temporary thing, and it means I need to go back instead of forward. Maybe I'm stuck because my subconscious knows that I took a wrong turn, and I need to backtrack and then keep moving on through, and then it works itself out. But I would advise this for anybody, whether you're doing something artistic, it could be any job. Sometimes we get to a standstill because we need to give some more thought to what we're doing because we're a little bit, we've, we've, we've veered off the beaten track in a way. Passage that, that caught my attention. I'm going to read this and get your reaction to it. I don't like the reminder that much of my energy is spent building a case instead of stopping the person responsible. It's my job to prepare for future juries, for future attorneys, to make sure I've explored every molecule of an investigation and documented all of it. But that's not enough, and I'm beyond being conservative. I'm not sure I'm capable of it anymore. Is this just typical angst on the job, or is this foreshadowing a major career change? For Kay Scarpetta. Well, I think it's foreshadowing a major personality change in her that's already started. It started a little bit in the last book, Dust, when Scarpetta decided to search a house at a crime scene that you arguably could say she should ha- had no business being in there because the body wasn't there. But she was looking for a weapon that would have inflicted a really bizarre injury that uh, this particular victim had. And she justified it because she was hell-bent on leather. She was going in this place because everything was out of control and she was going to make a difference and change things. And so what we're seeing with her, and you certainly see it in Flesh and Blood, because there's a scene when she's been told to stay in the car, and next thing you know, she is right out there walking up the street and confronting somebody when she realizes who it is. And so I think you're talking a personality change that she she's not really breaking bad, so to speak, but she is much more proactive because... One of the things that happens, I think, as you get older, you just say, I had enough of this mess. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to fix it. And the hell with the rules. It's not that she's doing something illegal, but sometimes she veers away from protocol if it just doesn't work. So what can we expect down the line from Kay? I think more Breaking Bad. 
I don't know, but I think that, you know, I'm just getting ready. I'm just starting the next one. And I think you're going to see more of this, a more proactive character. When I started all this, like I said, in the in the early 1980s, started doing the research, medical examiners were much more conservative than they are today. Um, I think everybody has learned there are other ways to do things. You can be more creative. It's not as regimented as it used to be. And so I'm having fun evolving Scarpetta in a way that, yes, she will always do the smartest thing you can imagine with the science and the medicine. But as a personality, if she has to, particularly if she needs to defend somebody, like this in this in this book in particular, there's this corrupt insurance investigator who is trying to cheat an old woman out of insurance um, benefits after her husband had an unnatural death, you know, died in the woods, was lost and died of hypothermia. And we see how Scarpetta handles that because she's disgusted. This elderly woman's going to lose her house. And so now is it really her job to take care of it? You could argue that it's not, but she's going to, and she does. How long does it take you to write a book? Well, I work on one Scarpetta per year, but it's it's a seasonal thing in terms of sometimes the writing is bountiful and I can barely write it fast enough as it's coming out, and then you have starker periods because I'm busy doing other things, particularly like right now I'm on a book tour, so I'm not going to get any writing done on Scarpetta while I'm doing this. So, you know, it stretches out. It's a cyclical. I try to do, really try very hard to do one book a year. I'm sure your fans are going to just not enjoy this question, but when will you know it's time to hang up this particular series? It will probably quit me before I quit it. Um, there will come a time that I can't do this anymore for one reason or another. I feel, I hope I'm very far away from that point. But inevitably, I don't have plans for quitting her, but inevitably, it, she or it, the series, will have to quit me at some point if I can't do it anymore, unless I live forever, which is not likely. That would a bit fly in the face of everything I tell everybody about death. Um, you know, I won't be able to write these books forever. Talking with you, reading about you, you, you obviously have varied interests, varied talents. You're not defined. You're not just an author. Could we see you perhaps open up a school for medical examiners or get back in the medical examiner's office? Where, where might we see you five, ten years down the road well, that has nothing to do with writing? Well, actually, um, I, I am very involved in training. I have a number of programs I'm involved in that help train police, that help train death investigators. Um, I have been very involved in that, literally given millions of dollars to it over the years because training is the most important thing. A lot of the really horrible things that you see on the news, particularly cases that seem to have been bungled and caused tremendous problems in our society, uh, including ones going on even as I speak, a lot of things could be prevented if training were different. If people are taught exactly the right way to do things off the bat, um, sometimes you prevent something. I always say forensic science and forensic medicine are the cleanup crew. Our goal is to never need either one. And so prevent things if you can. Don't force good people to have to go up and go out and work a crime scene and autopsy a body if we could prevent that death to begin with. And so that's in training or prevent uh, uh, something awful in court where something gets thrown out and justice is denied because somebody didn't do something properly at a crime scene or during an autopsy. Let's teach people the right way so we can diminish these types of tragedies. This particular book that brought you to St. Louis, Flesh and Blood, what is special about this novel to you? I think what's special about this novel to me is that 
the past comes back to haunt Scarpetta. And it's a reminder to all of us that sometimes we think business is unfinished with something from very long ago and we don't look for it anymore. And then you get surprised when it crops up again. And so I all, you know, I love the science and medicine in terms of what she does to really figure out exactly what happened here. But what I like best of all is when she gets the answer, which is the last one she'd ever want to hear, which pretty much it's the way she deals with it. And, and then I think that People are going to love the ending, even though it's pretty scary. When she's 100 feet under the water, you know, in the ocean, trying to recover some biological evidence from a homicide, and she gets a confrontation, the likes of which the fans haven't seen before. And it's they'll have a different feeling about scuba diving after this, trust me. <laughs> One of the adjectives I used at the beginning of our conversation to describe Kay was conflicted. Is that accurate? I think she's a conflicted person. I think that, you know, she's... I think she's conflicted about a lot of things. I mean, she's torn by how she feels sometimes, and she worries that she doesn't do a good enough job, or sometimes she's not as good a person as she should be. I think she's conflicted in that the the tragedies that she sees, she has a great deal of humanity, but she has to deal with the anger that it causes because she deep down gets so angry at when people abuse power and do horrible things to, to others. And But she can't allow herself to let it turn her into a hateful person. So she is constantly doing like a pre-flight check on herself to make sure she's headed in the right direction and doing things the right way and not becoming the enemy herself. One of the questions I often hear is a film in the works with one of your novels. What can you tell us? Well, right now I'm under contract with Fox 2000 and we're in script development. And I feel very hopeful uh, this time, more so than in the past, because Carpet has been making the rounds in Hollywood for 25 years now. But we have a really great producer. As a matter of fact, she did a lot of Dexter. And um, she's really great. And I think she's going to get the job done. If, in fact, one of your novels is made into a film, something I'm curious about, casting, how involved would you be with that? They, uh, is, they probably will only ask me my opinion. They're not going to let me decide who's cast as anybody. And quite honestly, if, if I'm spending 40 or $50 million on a project, I probably don't want someone else telling me what to do either. So I respect that. Um, but I feel that Fox 2000 is really smart about what they're doing. The most important thing about casting Scarpetta is to get somebody who makes us believe that she is that character as opposed to it doesn't even have to be the huge star power, but I do think they'll get somebody pretty big because they'll have to to open the movie in the way they want. But I want somebody who disappears and we believe that she is her. We talked about the fact that the characters in the books are not based on anyone that you know of specifically. But I am curious, you, you mentioned Italian food more than once um, in the book and you also talk about Tuscany. Do you have an affinity for Italian food in Italy? Oh, I do. And I love going to Italy. And I, I've written a couple cookbooks. And I just I, I love the abundance of the Italian spirit. And it, and it contrasts very vividly with the starkness of the world that Scarpetta works in. I mean, she goes to work into a, in, into a world made of stainless steel, where there's the only color in the morgue is the colors from the body bodies themselves. There is no color. The walls aren't painted a pretty shade. Everything is just, you know, stony sort of beige-ish white. And so to go home and listen to beautiful music and have a nice bottle of wine and, you know, her cold-pressed unfiltered olive oils and her herbs in the in the clay pots in her sunroom, you know, all these things that she, and she makes things with her hands. Mm-hmm. She touches what she does, whether it's fresh pasta or bread, because it's a ritual where this is how she gives of herself to those around her. 
and that's really one of the more sensual parts of the book when you talk about the olive oil and the bread and the vegetables. First of all, I was starving, but it really draws the reader in because you are so descriptive. Well, I sum it up this way. The Scarpetta books, they, they are the science of death, but the art of life. And so that is what makes them tolerable, that they're before this backdrop of the worst thing you can think of. But these, these characters are very much alive, and they celebrate life, and they take care of those left behind. And it really is about the living. They're not, these books are not about the dead. Patricia Cornwell on the way she's built her most famous character, Kay Scarpetta, and the series of books that she inhabits. Since our interview with her in 2014, the number of Scarpetta novels has expanded to a total of 24. But now to close out our podcast, we'll listen to Patricia Cornwell read a couple of small passages from her 22nd book of the Scarpetta series, Flesh and Blood, in the words of Kay. Had a gun been fired on the property, someone would have heard it. I strongly suspect that Neri was shot long-range by someone experienced and skilled who had a point to make. I retrieve a magnifying hand lens to get a better look at the small tangential hole in the back of the neck at the hairline. I take photographs. I turn the head slightly to the right and blood spills out of the wound, an entrance wound. I move the head some more and shine a flashlight. Fragments of copper light up like gold in a mush of coagulating blood, hair, and brain tissue. I don't like the reminder that much of my energy is spent building a case instead of stopping the person responsible. It's my job to prepare for future juries, for future attorneys, to make sure I've explored every molecule of an investigation and documented all of it. But that's not enough, and I'm beyond being conservative. I'm not sure I'm capable of it anymore. That's Edgar Award-winning author Patricia Cornwell reading from her book, Flesh and Blood, from publisher HarperCollins during our interview with her in November of 2014. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host of the video version of this program was Cordell Whitlock. Photography was by Tom Newcomb, Peter Foggy, and Jane Ballou. Editor and graphics were by Tanya Allen Mason. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support was by Jane Ballou. HEC Media Executive Director, Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. The podcast editor was Ben Smith. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to Maryville University and St. Louis Public Radio. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. Coming up on the next episode of Talking with Authors, we'll drop in on our conversation with the two-time Newbery Award-winning New York Times best-selling children's book writer, Kate DiCamillo. The author of Because of Winn-Dixie will talk about a couple of her most recent works, Ramey Nightingale and Louisiana's Way Home, and what it's like for her to see her audience in person. What's that moment like when you kind of walk in and you see all those little faces looking up sometimes, at you? Um, sometimes it makes me cry. You know, it's like it's so overwhelming because it's the it's that books matter. We're so worried about kids and electronics and digital, yeah, age, digital and age. And I just see so many kids holding books and the books really matter to them. And so that's part of what makes me tear up. 
And then the other thing is, you know, there's still a part of me that's like uh, hoping I'm going to get published, you know, and so I can't believe that that I'm here and that I've I've gotten real. to write the books. The books have been published and people read the books. Yeah. Award-winning children's book author Kate DiCamillo on the next episode of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. To make sure you get the episode as soon as it comes out, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to follow Talking with Authors on all social media platforms.